Mishkan. Okay, we're going to be learning Parashat Shumah, which was last week's parasha. Uh And it actually ties in, in in a couple of interesting ways to the subject of Purim, which we will, uh, and the Megillah, which we will ha- have the opportunity, hopefully, to mention along the way, too. But... Uh, as many of the speakers on Shabbat mentioned, and uh, I think many rabbis uh, uh, referenced this when they discussed this parasha and also the next week's parasha, and, and really, honestly, uh, with, the, with a couple of exceptions here and there, maybe parashat Kitisa is an exception, uh, there's very little storyline to follow in uh, these parashiyot, this parasha of Terumah, Titzaveh also, and then Vayakel Pikudei as well, and, uh, and of course Vayikra, which gets into the details of the Korbanot. There, we kind of lose the thread of a storyline, and there's not much drama, uh, there's not much narrative uh, to, to engage us in, um, in the, uh, the content of the parashiyot. So many people, they start to develop a little bit of, uh, you know, become a little bit distracted from parashat HaShavua during these weeks as a result of the content not being as, uh, as engaging, maybe as exciting, I should say, as, uh, as uh, some of the stories are. I think Bereshit, of course, grabs everyone, and then Shemot also, as long as stories are happening, we're able to relate. But as soon as we get to the Mishkan, Comes very abstract, comes very technical. A lot of measurements, a lot of details, a lot of architecture, uh, and uh, and and a lot of references to substances and materials that we don't recognize, and shapes and 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 designs that are hard for us to imagine. And it just it becomes very difficult to relate to the parashiot and to connect to the content. And so, um, I, with that in mind, I do think that you know it's it's important for us. We see that the Torah places such a great emphasis on the Mishkan, on the Bet HaMikdash, uh, not only in, uh, in Parashat Trumat, Titzaveh, Vayakel Pekudei, it's not the only place that we see this emphasis. We also see this emphasis in, um, in the, uh, you know, before these Parashiot, the concept that a Mishkan will eventually be built. And we see it throughout the Tanakh, that the Bet HaMikdash is very, very significant. David HaMelech yearns to build the Bet HaMikdash. Shlomo HaMelech invests an enormous amount of money uh, and and uh, effort into the construction of the Beit Hamikdash. The Beit Hamikdash is the the purification and the maintenance of the Beit Hamikdash, or the failure to purify and maintain the Beit Hamikdash, is oftentimes a uh, a measure of the success or failure uh, of a particular king of Yehuda. Throughout the book of Mil- book of Melachim, we see that. And of course, the measure of the exile or the moment where we really uh, feel that we've lost. Jewish presence in Eretz Israel in Tanakh is the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, and that's what we mourn on Tisha B'Av, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So, so much of Judaism actually revolves around the Beit HaMikdash, even though we tend to think of the Beit HaMikdash as a uh, sort of abstract concept, because we've never had the opportunity to live with the Beit HaMikdash and to, uh, and to have that as the center of our national worship or our relationship with God. So we can't conceive of a Beit HaMikdash, and we don't feel the loss of a Beit HaMikdash because we're accustomed to living without a Beit HaMikdash. But the, um, but the Torah obviously thought it was important to spend a tremendous amount of space and a tremendous amount of time discussing the details of the Beit HaMikdash or the Mishkan, and so did the Tanakh. And, uh, and up to the point that our main day of mourning is the morning of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, which, is a, you know, which, which again underscores how significant it is in Jewish thought. And uh, somebody I saw the other day mentioned that um, mentioned that looking back, he was saying looking back on photographs of 
pre-pandemic times, events and celebrations and other activities uh, that uh, he was reflecting on the fact that now we, um, you know, we, we, we had things that we took for granted. We never thought that we would be living without those things, without the ability to socialize and interact and have large gatherings and all this. We never imagined that we would, we would have to exist without that. And then we look back and we see these pictures of us gathering in normal ways and we say, how could it, you know, we, we can't imagine that anymore because we've become so accustomed to the, uh, the, the new way of doing things for safety's sake. And he pointed out an interesting observation. This person pointed out that, uh, that it's the way that, you know, we oftentimes try to imagine what it was like to have, the, you know, to live with the Bet HaMikdash. We don't feel the absence of the Bet HaMikdash because we never had it. But, uh, but now we realize what it's like to miss something that was really uh, essential to our existence before and now has been taken away. And over the past year, we've adapted to a totally new way of life and the whole world has adapted to this bizarre new way of living life. And uh, it gives you an, a sense of maybe, you know, an analogy maybe to what the people who lost the Bet HaMikdash, who lived with the Bet HaMikdash, and then had to adapt to a strange new Judaism and a new world without a Bet HaMikdash, what it must have been like for them. Obviously, if we were to continue uh, with the current trajectory, uh, obviously we wanted to end as soon as possible, but if we were to continue with the current way of doing things for the next 20 years and our kids don't even remember what it was like, uh, you know, uh, it w- wouldn't even remember or wouldn't even recognize what normal life was like. That would be like what it's like for us without the Beit HaMikdash. We don't even recognize that something is missing. We just, uh, we grew up with things this way. But for someone who lived with the Beit HaMikdash their whole life and then it was destroyed, we can see how something so, cru- so crucial to their sense of what it meant to have a Jewish state or Jewish life was taken away that's what it's like for us today that we, you know, the socializing and the, the gatherings and the activities that we were so used to and accustomed to for so many years being not allowed to us uh, makes us think that uh, so much we took for granted, but gives us a sense of what it means to be robbed of something that, uh, that, was, that was central to our existence. Uh, we could get used to this. We could adapt to it. We can survive, but it's not the same as it was before. And that's the way we would feel without the Bet HaMikdash if we had lived with the Bet HaMikdash. It was an interesting analogy, I thought. But anyway, I wanted to discuss, the, obviously, the, the, uh, the Mishkan, because that's the subject of the parasha that passed and also the parashot that are coming up. But I wanted to take a more bird's eye view of the Mishkan. Rather than focus on a specific component of the Mishkan, I, what I'm interested to explore maybe is what is the purpose of the Mishkan and why it is so important to Jewish life and why it plays such a critical role, why it occupies so much space in the Torah and in the Tanakh. And for this purpose, I would like to share with you a screen. I can use this nifty screen sharing option here um, to allow me to show you, this is from Safaria. Safaria is a wonderful website that I oftentimes use for these classes because uh, it has here in Hebrew and English the text of many, many, many Jewish books, as I've mentioned in the past. Um, I don't want to say everything is on Safaria, but I, almost everything you would ever want to search for and to study from is there. And many things are both in Hebrew and English, including, of course, the Chumash, but many other texts as well. So here we have the parashaf. This is the beginning of the parashah of this past week. And of course, it describes the materials that the Jewish people were, were commanded to bring. 
But the purpose is stated in Pasuk Chet, in verse 8. You should make for me a sanctuary. And I will dwell among the Jewish people. That the Jewish people should make for me a sanctuary. Is, in the, is, a, is the future. They should make for me a sanctuary. And, uh, and I will dwell uh, among them. And so, uh, and this is the, the main purpose. You have to do exactly as I've commanded you in terms of the construction of the Mishkan. But the main point seems to be, let them make a sanctuary that I can dwell among them. What does it mean for God to dwell among people? And since when was this an objective of the, uh, of the Torah? So they're really the... Obviously, the idea that Hashem would dwell among people is not take, to be taken literally in any way. God is not physical. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't dwell in any space, and he doesn't exist in space and time. The idea is a metaphor, obviously, uh, the concept of the Mishkan. But the idea to, that we should have a sanctuary that represents the presence of God in our midst is really what seems to be the goal. And the question that the commentaries raise and that, that our Jewish thinkers have grappled with is what is really the objective of this Mishkan? And I would say there are two basic approaches to how we can understand the Mishkan. The Mishkan as either a, uh, a, a one interpretation of the Mishkan is that it is a perpetuation. It is an extension of the experience that the Jewish people had at Mount Sinai. Because we know the Jewish people at Mount Sinai experienced the presence of God, the revelation of the Torah. They had a face-to-face encounter with the divine. And then they moved on from Har Sinai. And it was basically after they constructed the Mishkan that they moved on from Har Sinai and they began to travel. So the Ramban, Nachmanides, has a really fascinating and very compelling interpretation of the Mishkan that he lays out in his commentary in this parashah of Terumah, where he states that the purpose of the Mishkan was essentially to give the Jewish people, they had this one time in history, this moment of encounter with God, that moment would have simply been a memory. Of course, it was committed to writing in the text of the Torah, but it would have been a memory that would fade with time. And so the Ramban says, Nachmanides says, that the purpose of the Mishkan was basically to keep that experience alive. That originally Hashem's presence was uh, revealed to us on Har Sinai, but once we received the Torah, Hashem's presence continues to be with us in the Mishkan. And he explains that this is why there are three sections to the Mishkan. There's an outer courtyard, an inner area, and an inner, inner area called Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, that represents the three levels that existed on Mount Sinai, the bottom of the mountain, a further up part of the mountain where the, uh, where the great people, but not the, not the, not the common people, but the, the special individuals like Aaron and so on were allowed to stand. And then the, the top of the top, which was where only Moshe Rabbeinu was allowed to go, it represents these three levels. The Mishkan represents Mount Sinai, basically, the outer area, the, the area a little bit closer, and the, and the highest level of holiness is the same thing that we see on Mount Sinai, we see in the Mishkan. And of course, he points out that what is at the center of the Mishkan? What is the Mishkan often called? It's often called Mishkan Ha'edut, the dwelling place of the testimony, meaning of the tablets of testimony that Moshe Rabbeinu brought down from Mount Sinai that contained the revelation that God 
gave to the Jewish people at Har Sinai. So the fact that that is at the center, that is in the Holy of Holies of the Mishkan, and that is actually what the Mishkan is named after. It's called the dwelling place of, the home of, the, the repository of these luchot, these tablets. So obviously that experience of the revelation of the Ten Commandments, Ramban says, is the essence of the Mishkan. The whole Mishkan is that the Jewish people should be able to have a constant re-engagement and re-experience of this uh, moment of encounter with God that they, uh, that, you know, that, they, uh, that they first experienced at Har Sinai, that it shouldn't be lost, but it should be something that they can renew and revisit again and again when they come to the Mishkan. That's the idea of the Ramban. Very interesting idea, very interesting concept, and that, according to that interpretation, of course, that would mean that. Uh, oh, can I? I don't know. Let me see if I can make it bigger. I might be able to just make the text bigger. Hold on, can I do that? Um, I don't know. I thought that it gave me the option to make the the font bigger, but I don't. See if it does. Let's see. Oh, yeah, it does. Wait one second. Font size. Okay. Maybe that will help a little. Um, that's the most I think I can do. I'm not sure. But um, the, uh, the, the, the point being that according to the Ramban, and actually we could even find the Ramban here on Safaria, but I don't want to go too far into the uh, different texts here. You can even find on Safaria, which is what makes it so amazing, commentary, and you can go to the Ramban. And oh, and he even has the Ramban in English, amazingly. And, uh, and he says here the idea of the moment at Mount Sinai, that the glory of Hashem on Mount Sinai will now be with them, and now the place that Hashem will speak to Moshe becomes the Mishkan instead of Mount Sinai. And he brings all of these connections here. You can actually look here on Tzafariah and see the, uh, and see how he makes his case. I don't want to go too much into specifically only the Ramban, but that's the Ramban's interpretation of the Mishkan. And I think it's a very compelling interpretation and there's a lot to recommend the interpretation and he has a lot of proofs and a lot of evidence to back it up. There's another interpretation of the Mishkan that is the more uh, that is maybe a more commonly... Oh, and by the way, the, the Ramban also says that... Uh, or actually the Midrash says... I can't remember if the Ramban quotes it directly, but the Midrash says that the, uh, that the Mishkan is like a... Um, he gives the analogy... The rabbis give the analogy that a father-in-law doesn't want his daughter to, to, to get married because very attached to her. So he says, you can marry my daughter, but only if you always have an apartment for me to be with you wherever you go. So I can always stay nearby wherever you go with, with my daughter. Once you've married her, I can always stay nearby and be with her and be with you. And uh, in the same way, Hashem says, I'm giving you the Torah, but once you receive the Torah, you have to make a mishkan for me to be with you, for my presence to be with you. And that's a similar concept. In other words, that the receiving of the Torah meant a relationship with God and that relationship with God would be embodied in the Mishkan. That's the way the Ramban interprets it, and I think it's a great interpretation, and a lot of the modern commentaries actually gravitate to this idea of the Ramban. They like it very much because of all of the similarities and all of the, the, the common symbolism that we find between the Mishkan and the uh, revelation at Mount Sinai. Now, that's the Ramban. Now, the other interpretation that a lot of commentaries uh, uh, are uh, draw from. Uh, the Sephorno, the Rambam, Maimonides, uh, among others, is the idea that the Mishkan is basically an antidote to idolatry. Now, in other words, it makes it less of a, it makes it um, 
more of a necessary evil, you could say, than a positive. The Ramban's idea is all positive. It's perpetuating the experience of Mount Sinai for all generations and the opportunity to have an encounter with God is memorialized and, 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 and sort of embodied in the Mishkan. That, that's a more positive idea. The Rambam, Maimonides and Sephorno and others have a, uh, a more... Uh, a cautious idea about the Mishkan. They say that really the idea of God is so abstract and so transcendent and so beyond their comprehension that it would be off-putting for the Jewish people to have to relate to God in a purely abstract way. In fact, the need to relate to God in a purely abstract way failed because in Parashat Kitisa, they make the Egel Azahav, they make the golden calf. The golden calf was made not to replace God, but to give the Jewish people a feeling that the presence of God was still with them, even when Moshe Rabbeinu was absent. In other words, it wasn't really a substitute for God himself, as much as it was a way to connect to God or to feel secure in God's presence and their relationship with God. Um, and that's the concept of the... Uh, of, of the Egel HaZahav. So the, the Mishkan, according to these commentaries, and Rashi actually also seems to be among them, the building of the Mishkan, the commandment to build the Mishkan actually came after the sin of the golden calf. Even though it's written here prior to the sin of the golden calf, because the sin of the golden calf happens in Parashat Kitisa and Trumat Titzavar before that, the two parashiot that deal with the Mishkan and the, and the, clothings, the clothing of the Kohanim are before that. But we say that this actually happened afterwards, that it was because of the sin of the golden calf that it became clear that the Jewish people could not relate to God in a purely abstract way. They needed some physical medium to represent the presence of God, and therefore Hashem commanded them to create the sanctuary that would allow them to relate to God in a way that was simultaneously something physical and something that would engage their senses and their uh, and their you know and their physicality but at the same time would negate any idea that Hashem could be represented in a physical form because you see that the only thing that there is in the Kodesh HaKodeshim is the Luchot, the tablets of the uh, Ten Commandments. And of course, there's nothing representing God and the Kodesh HaKodeshim is only accessible to the person of the highest level, really Moshe Rabbeinu and then eventually the Kohen Gadol. So the idea that our ability to relate to God is very limited because of our, our, uh, the fact that we are finite and we are mortal. Um, is expressed in the Mishkan at the very same time the majesty and greatness of God is put on display in the beauty of the Mishkan. So we're able to relate to God through the beauty of the aesthetics of the Mishkan and the, and the symbolism of the Mishkan and all the ideas that are embedded in it. And at the same time, we are taught not to mistakenly think that this is really a home for God or that God is really limited or is able to be depicted in any way um, or that we could lower God down to our level. It's, it gets away from that. So the Mishkan serves that purpose according to the, uh, according to the Rambam and Sephorno. Now, the interesting thing is that that would seem to suggest that the idea of a Mishkan only came into existence after the sin of the golden calf, but that's not really true. And I'm going to show you another uh, aside that's not true because if we look, if we switch over one second to uh, the, uh, the song at the sea that we're all familiar with, Shirat Hayam, what is one of the things that is said in the song at the sea? is Mikdash Hashem Kon Yadecha. That you, the sanctuary, that you will, you will bring them and plant them in your own mountain, the place you made to dwell in, the sanctuary which your hands established. In other words, there is an idea that there will be a sanctuary. There will be some kind of a place, some kind of a sanctuary that will represent God's presence on earth 
and this was one of the goals of Am Yisrael to come to the Jewish to come to the land of Israel and to have a sanctuary, to have a mikdash that would be uh, a place, a center for the worship of God. So the idea that there would be a center for the worship of God and a place that uh, that would represent His presence and that that seems to be a given. That would always have been the case. The question is, what would it look like? What would it be like? And according to the Ramban, the specific format was based upon the revelation at Sinai. It was a reenactment of the revelation of, at Sinai. According to other commentaries, it was mainly a negation of the sin of the golden calf. In other words, the way that the sanctuary was structured, there would have been some kind of a sanctuary no matter what, some kind of a center no matter what, but it was based upon a um, a, a direction away from idolatry uh, and, and a, a rejection of the, um, the failing of the sin of the golden calf. So either way, that there would be some kind of a sanctuary seems to have been part of the plan from the beginning. What the sanctuary exactly would look like is where the Ramban and the other commentaries differ. But everyone agrees that there would be some kind of a Mishkan and that this Mishkan has a symbolic significance in pointing to the presence of God and elevating our awareness of the presence of God in a, in a, in a proper way, according to the Ramban, through remembering the, the revelation at Sinai, according to others, through the negation of idolatry that is implicit in the Mishkan. But either way, that is the idea of the Mishkan. Now, I wanted to show that the Mishkan, or the Beta Mikdash eventually, the difference between the Mishkan and the Beta Mikdash is that the Mishkan is a temporary and mobile uh, structure. And it, it also represents, in a way, the, the idea that the relationship between the Jewish people and Hashem is still in process. It's still something that has not been fully developed. It's still something that, uh, that we are, uh, that we're, we are in, uh, you know, it's still a journey. And, oh, and that's why even once the Jewish people came to Eretz Yisrael, they did not immediately build the Beit HaMikdash. For hundreds of years, they remained with more temporary shifting sanctuaries because the idea was that they hadn't reached the level of maturity, spiritual and political maturity, that they could really have a permanent Beit HaMikdash. And finally, there was Shiloh, which was pretty permanent. And eventually, there was, of course, the Beit HaMikdash, which was the ultimate achievement uh, that David HaMelech yearned for and that Shlomo HaMelech yearned for because what the Beit HaMikdash really represents is it represents what is the purpose of the political framework of the Jewish people. It's not an end in its own right. Having a monarchy and, an, and sovereign state is not an end in its own right. The sovereign state of Israel, even the ideal sovereign state under the leadership of David or under the leadership of Shlomo, is only an instrument, is only a means to the end of proclaiming the sovereignty of Hashem in the world. That is the main goal of it. And that's why it says there are three mitzvot that the Jewish people had when they came to the land of Israel. The first one was to appoint a king, which they did, but it took them hundreds of years to do it. And then to get rid of Amalek, which we read in the Haftarah of last week, Shaul was commanded to do so and he failed to do so. But what was the reason why the mitzvah of destroying Amalek was only after they appointed a king? And if you take a close look at Parashat Zachor that we read on Shabbat, it's also only after the Jewish people are at rest from their enemies. They don't destroy Amalek when they're in the middle of conquering the land, which would have made much more sense, much more economical. You're already conquering the land and you're at war. Destroy Amalek while you're at it. 
But no, we wait for a king. Why? Because Amalek wasn't really an imminent threat to the Jewish people. Amalek represented the, uh, the fundamentally unjust uh, way of surviving and existing. It was, a, it was a group that survived by pirating others, by taking advantage of the weak and the defenseless. They would identify groups, camps, uh, villages, cities that were not well protected, and they would take advantage of their weaknesses and vulnerabilities. They would come in, they would steal whatever they could, they would rape and pillage and kidnap and whatever they needed to do to enrich themselves. And they basically lived off this kind of piracy. And so when they saw the Jewish people leaving Egypt, of course, they chased after them in order to take advantage of their weakness and try to plunder them. And they failed at that but they represent the opposite of what a Jewish state is supposed to be about because the Jewish people are supposed to be about caring for the weak and the defenseless and the vulnerable and establishing justice and compassion. And Amalek represents the opposite. That's why Amalek is always depicted as anti-Semitic because anti-Semitic doesn't just mean that they have a racial hatred for Jews. That's how we think about it today. It means that they had an ideological hatred for Jews. They hated the fact that the Jewish people stood for God's sovereignty on earth and for uh, the, the, the principles of justice and compassion extended to all creatures. They were opposed to that. They didn't like that. That was anathema to them. And so therefore they wanted to destroy it. And so, so the idea of the king attacking Amalek is that he was saying that I'm using my sovereign power, my, my, uh, the authority that I have as the king of Israel to eliminate injustice, to wipe out those who prey on the weak and defenseless. It wasn't that Amalek could possibly ever stand up against somebody like David or Shlomo. It would be impossible. They couldn't really fight against an actual king. They, were, they didn't have that kind of manpower and, it would be, and they weren't posing any threat. They were looking to prey on the weak and the defenseless. They weren't looking to threaten an actual kingdom. But the fact that a kingdom that wasn't threatened by them, that was at peace, that didn't have anything material to gain and didn't have any concern about its national security, still got involved to establish the principle of justice and the principles of compassion in the land of Israel, that says something about what kind of a king the Jewish king is supposed to be and what kind of government the Jewish government is supposed to be. And then finally, once you've done that, the Torah tells us that once, it says in Parashat Bishalach, that Hashem has sworn on his throne, so to speak, that there is a war between Hashem and Amalek from generation to generation. Meaning that, and the rabbis interpret that, it says, Kiyad al the hand, meaning Hashem is swearing with his hand, so to speak, on the throne. But the word throne is missing an aleph. It says al kesya. What does it mean? It means that the throne of God is incomplete as long as Amalek exists. Meaning to say that as long as there are people who are living and operating in a way that's contrary to the will of God, God's majesty cannot really be proclaimed in the world. And so we first have to get rid of Amalek and then we can have the Beit HaMikdash, which of course is the exact opposite of what Amalek represents. So we get rid of Amalek and then we establish the Beit HaMikdash. So what the, the purpose of having a king do these things, having a king attack Amalek and having a, a king build the Beit HaMikdash is that it's showing how we channel our political power as the Jewish people. We don't channel it only into our own economic benefit, our own national security concerns or anything like that. We 
channel it also into demonstrating or ultimately everything that we do is only a means to our ultimate purpose, which is Kiddush Hashem in the world, which is sanctifying God's name in the world. And that means fighting injustice. And that also means establishing the institution of the Beit HaMikdash that points everyone's mind to the ultimate king. And that's why when it speaks about Shlomo HaMelech building his own palace, it speaks about him building the Beit HaMikdash because the idea is that his kingdom, his power, his uh, authority is subordinate to and instrumental to uh, bringing to light the power and the majesty, the greatness of God. That's the purpose of it. And, um, and, the, uh, and it's only when the kings lose sight of that and think that the purpose of their kingdom or the purpose of their power, the purpose of the authority granted to them is to serve themselves, that's when they uh, end up being punished. That's when they come into conflict with God. And that's when the Beit HaMikdash ends up being neglected. And that's when the service of God, of course, falls by the wayside because human ego becomes involved. But really, that's why David HaMelech said, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar and the, Beit HaMik- and the, and the, Mish- and the Aron, the ark, the carries the uh, of the covenant that carries the luchot is in a, is in a tent how could it be that there's not a building for the Beit HaMikdash and there's only a tent and then Hashem tells him you can't build it but your son will build it but the point is that he saw a disparity in the idea that human power should be in a sanctuary basically in a, in a palace that was so grand but that Hashem's kingship and malchut should only be represented by a tent that was you know, incongruous and unacceptable to David HaMelech. So therefore, he wanted the Beit HaMikdash to be built. But the idea is that what a Mishkan shows you is what is the purpose of the power we have. And you can see that in the case of the Jews leaving Mitzrayim as well. That what was the purpose of their freedom? To create a sanctuary for God. To bring God's presence and bring awareness of God um, into the world. That was the goal, ultimately, of everything that they had. And uh, once they came to the, to the land of Israel, that was even more pressing of a goal, that they should demonstrate that to the nations of the world. And so, and, and if we turn to the story of Purim, just briefly, before I get into the other two things we're going to look at quickly, the story of Purim opens with the palace of Achashverosh. And really all of the intrigue and everything that happens in the story of Purim happens in the palace of Achashverosh. And as many of the Midrashim mention, a lot of the language used to describe Achashverosh and to describe his palace and to describe his clothing and even to describe... Um, the, the way that he shows off his opulence and the luxury um, that, he, uh, you know, that, that he has, a lot of the language and a lot of the imagery seems to be word for word copied out of the language used to describe the Beit HaMikdash or the Mishkan and to describe the uh, clothing of the Kohanim. The Midrashim emphasize this a lot. Um, the fabrics that are mentioned there, the materials that are mentioned there, the idea of lechavorul tifaret that says that et yikar tiferet gedulato, the the wonder of his of his maj- the splendor of his, of his uh, of his greatness, all of this language is language of the mishkan. So the idea is that he replaced in a way the the, the mishkan. The Jewish people at that time, at the time of the story of Purim, were Jewish people who had neglected to go on aliyah. To, the, to Israel when Koresh allowed them to go. When King Cyrus allowed the Jewish people to return to Israel, they neglected to go, they refused to go. They decided to stay in Persia. And so there's a lot of an implicit critique of the Jewish people who stayed in Persia embedded in the Megillah. And one of the ways that it is, is by describing the palace of Achashverosh and everything he had as if it was a replacement Beit HaMikdash. Essentially what the, what the Megillah is saying is that these Jews accepted Achashverosh as their Kohen Gadol. And they accepted the Mishka, the, his Mishkan, his palace, as their Beit HaMikdash. And his kingdom as the true kingdom. And they didn't see the hand of God behind it. 
And that was why the whole experience of the story of Purim had to happen so that they would recognize that even behind the mighty king of Achashverosh, the one pulling the strings ultimately is the Bore uh, Olam, the creator of the world. But um, that's the idea of Purim. But that's why it's linked in a way to, uh, to the Mishkan because the Mishkan is an institution uh, that, that, that is created in order to uh, to subordinate human power and human uh, ingenuity to the goal of bringing God's presence to people's awareness. And most human ingenuity and most creativity is used to bring awareness to human beings and to make them the center. And that was what Achashverosh tried to do, uh, but that's what the Mishkan tries to go against. And that's why there's a contrast, there's sort of an irony in describing Achashverosh's palace in the same language that the uh, that uh, the Mishkan has described because they're competing against each other for the Jewish people's attention. The Jewish people are so enamored with Achashverosh and his greatness that they don't seek God and God's greatness. And so this is the, uh, this is the connection between Purim and the Mishkan. But one, a couple of other texts here. We have in the Book of Kings, in Sefer Mlachim, uh, Aleph, in Perik Chet, this is chapter 8, we have the, uh, the construction of the Mishkan. And the uh, and how they brought the Aaron in and and the uh, sanctification and consecration of the of the Beta Megdash of the first temple, and uh, and then we have the very very famous speech of Shlomo Melech starting with verse twelve. It's really very beautiful, and everyone should um, should take it as their homework to go and to uh, to read it if you've not read it before, um, because it's very inspiring, very beautiful, and uh, you know just really powerful uh, text. And it says, "As Amar Hashem Hashem is chosen to dwell in a thick cloud, meaning Hashem Himself is a mystery. Bano baniti machon olamim. I have built for you a house, a bed zevul, a place of dwelling, machon olamim, a place where you can dwell forever. Now you notice, machon is exactly the words of." Shiratayam of the exact same words. So he says, he's saying to Hashem, I've built for you a house to dwell. But then what does Shlomo Amelech say a little bit further on after he describes the history behind this moment? He says, um, he says that, uh, uh, hold on. If starting in verse 27, I mean, all of this is the speech and it's all worth reading, but I'm just skipping to a part that I wanted to focus on. It says, Could God really dwell on earth? Even the heavens and the uttermost heavens cannot contain God. Certainly not this house that I built. Meaning, we should realize that this house is not actually a dwelling place for God. It's simply a place that helps us connect to God and reminds us of God. And, uh, and, and he says also in verse 23 before that, that uh, Hashem is the God of Israel, that there's none like you in the heavens above and on the earth below. And so then he says, um, he says in, in 29, verse 29, Your eyes should be open upon this house day and night. The place that you said, may my name be there. That you should listen to the prayer that anyone directs towards this house. And if you look in, he says each time, You should listen to the supplication of your servant, meaning himself, 
and the Jewish people, Asher Yitvalilulamakomaze, that they pray facing this house, okay, or in that house. And you will hear in the place of your dwelling in heaven, and you will hear and you will forgive. In other words, he's saying, he keeps emphasizing, you will hear it in the Shemaim, meaning in, not meaning in the physical heavens, because he just said before that Shemaim, uh, uh, that God is not contained in the, uh, in the heavens either. So it doesn't mean in the physical heavens that we can see, but it means in the spiritual realm, in other words, in the beyond. Okay, and we see that all of this, um, uh, that it speaks again and again as um, a, a person who uh, sins and then he, uh, he comes here and he comes to make amends and it says, you should listen in uh, somebody, uh, or actually, no, this is talking about the first, he talks about somebody who is the, uh, the injured party. The injured party comes and prays to you. It says, you should listen from heaven. This is verse Lamid Bet. And you should judge the person and set things straight. And, and when the Jewish people sin and they turn and they do Teshuvah, and in verse 34 it says, and in heaven, you should listen. In other words, the people will come to this place and they will pray facing towards this place, but you will hear from the heavens. And that's what he says again and again. And he even mentions here very interestingly, and the rabbis point this out, he says um, that at first he says, any Jewish person who prays, you should answer them. But then he also says that... Uh, that vegam el in verse forty one, even a non Jew, who is not a non, who is not of the Jewish people, and in, for the sake of your name, he comes from a distant land, and he hears about how great Hashem is, and he comes to this place to pray. You should listen and answer everything that he asks of you, so that the nations of the world should know your name, to fear you, like the Jewish people do. And to know that your name is called upon this house that I've built. In other words, what he's saying is that the purpose of this house is to inspire people, is to direct their mind towards God, and even to bring members of the nations of the world to this place to recognize and acknowledge God the way the Jewish people do. In other words, the Jewish people are setting an example, and the nations of the world also will come to uh, come close to God through this house. Not that God is contained in the house. And he says it again and again. You will hear from heaven each time they pray. And there are many, many, many examples of different situations in which people would pray and they would turn and they would come to this house, the Beit HaMikdash, where they would face it in their tefillah and Hashem would hear them. So it's a, it's a device, it's a means to bring us closer to God, to elevate our consciousness of God, not that God is contained in the house, but that is the concept of the Mishkan, to have such a place. And one last important text, which is the very end of the book of Yeshayahu. Similar opening, Ko Amar Hashem. Now Yeshayahu lived a couple of hundred years after uh, King Solomon. But uh, he says, Ko Amar Hashem, kisi, raglai. So says Hashem, the heavens are my throne and the land is my footstool. Where could you build a house for me? What place could serve as my abode? Everything that you see was made by my hand. So he says, even so, even though I created the entire universe, I still have a special relationship with the person who is the humble person who is devoted to God. But the, the idea, again, that Hashem is beyond any ability to contain Him in a house or limit Him to a house. But the, but the concept of ha- that really the universe testifies to God and His presence can be found anywhere. But uh, the, the existence of a, a house is to enable us to connect with God. And, um, and we see that it says right here, uh, 
when it speaks about the uh, the Bet Hamikdash, it says, and this is a, this after all that we read actually on uh, we read it on um, on on Rosh Chodesh that falls on Shabbat. That in every Rosh Chodesh and every Shabbat, all flesh, meaning Jews and non-Jews, will come to bow before me, says Hashem. In other words, the idea is that it's a universal place for people to come and to relate to God. And that, that's really ultimately the goal of, uh, of having a Beit HaMikdash. It's, a, it's to enable people to be unified in their recognition of God and to elevate their, uh, their uh, knowledge and their awareness of God. Um, there, are, there are other very famous verses that have the same, uh, that have the same uh, message to them. The most famous one is probably, uh, uh, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations, which is also in uh, the book of Yeshayahu. But the um, but the main point that I wanted to, to to emphasize is that the goal of the Jewish people and the, you know the, their purpose ultimately is to bring humanity to an awareness of God and a recognition of God. First, of course, for they themselves to come to that understanding, but then to utilize the resources that they have, the political influence that they have, the time that they have, the effort and energy to uh, raise awareness, not, a, not, to in, not to aggrandize themselves, but to bring attention and honor to God. And the primary way they do that is through the Beit HaMikdash, which first enables them to stay conscious of God and to stay uh, and and to remain connected to Him, to His wisdom, to His presence, um, and to stay away from the lure of idolatry, and then to become ambassadors of God to the world, who will also come. Members of the nations of the world also come to the Beit Hamikdash to worship God, and that's that's part of our purpose to build ourselves up and raise ourselves up as role models, so that we can then welcome and educate and inspire the nations of the world towards that end as well. This is the reason why the Torah spends such a great amount of time on the Beit Hamikdash, and why the Tanakh emphasizes it so much, every detail, and why it was so important to the kings of Israel to create and to maintain a Beit Hamikdash because it signifies the ultimate purpose of Am Yisrael which is to be a vehicle of sanctifying the name of God in the world, not only on an individual level, we're all obligated to do that, but on a national and institutional level. And the ultimate way we show that is when our political infrastructure is made into, so to speak, the handmaiden of the Beit HaMikdash. It props up, it supports the Beit HaMikdash, not the other way around. That the Beit HaMikdash is our goal, that bringing awareness and bringing honor to God is our goal, um, and, uh, and whatever we have and whatever political success, economic success and so on that we have is only a means to the end of glorifying God's name in the world, then we've really achieved our purpose as uh, Am Yisrael, as the Jewish people and the, uh, the chosen people. So Bezrat Hashem, we should have the Zichut to realize this dream in our time. And of course, the story of the Megillah reminds us how easy it is for us to be swept up in the aggrandizement of any human being's majesty and to lose sight of God's majesty. But we learn from the story of the Megillah that God's majesty is really always the one that it has the ultimate deciding uh, vote in everything that happens. And it's only by knowing and understanding that 
that we really are successful. So Bezvat Hashem, we should be able to see this lesson, learn this lesson, take it to heart, and live by it. And I wish everybody a happy Purim, and hopefully we'll meet again next week to continue with Parashat Titzaveh.